I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Creature Future, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, it's a listener's questions episode. You write to me your questions, and I answer them. That's how it works. Uh, my email is creaturefeature. <coughs> nope, that's not my email. <clears throat> my email is creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. If you have questions that you would like answered, you can write to me there. So let's get right into it with the first listener question. Hi, Katie. So I'm perplexed about various bird and animal diets. After the episode where you discuss the diverse diet of herons, this makes sense to me in terms of their physique and size. Now, take swans. How on earth do they become so massive in size and eat a diet of mostly pond plants, which I had to assume are not very calorically dense? How do they thrive on such a minimal diet? I guess this goes for many land herbivores that grow to enormous sizes as well. Cows, giraffes, elephants. I understand metabolism varies from species to species, but it still boggles my mind. Help me understand how pondweed sustains a swan. Thank you. Look forward to your podcast each week, Jody C. So this is a great question. How do plants sustain such huge creatures like elephants, pandas, gorilla? etc. So yes, you are correct. Swans primarily feed on pond plants. They do occasionally eat insects or crustaceans, but yeah, they, they most of their diet is vegetation. And this is also the case for even bigger animals like elephants. Elephants are primarily herbivores. They eat grasses, scrub, leaves, and sometimes even bark. Uh, they might sometimes supplement their diet with minerals found in dirt watering holes or mineral lick sites. But yeah, they, they feed primarily on vegetation. And it seems like it would be difficult to gain so much mass, fat, muscle, all that tissue just from vegetation. 
but yeah, vegetation can be converted into muscle mass, and when in when eaten in large enough quantities, they can easily sustain a large animal. So it is true that carnivores are quote unquote, unquote more efficient in that more of the food that they eat, like the meat. Uh, that they can convert into energy and body mass rather than waste, whereas an herbivore will poop out a lot of the indigestible plant material. I actually once had a journal that was made out of fibers that were collected from elephant poop uh, because they poop out so much of the insoluble fibers uh, from their diet, this fiber that cannot be broken down by their digestive system, uh, that people can collect it and then turn it into paper. Uh, so, uh, but in terms of like efficiency, it doesn't necessarily matter that if you eat, you know, a slab of meat, like you're going to be able to uh, digest that more easily than say the equivalent amount uh, of that like amount of calories in veg in plants or vegetables, uh, because it's about sort of the, availability, the abundance of the food source. So the food that herbivores eat, vegetation, is typically in high supply and easy to get in mass volume. Whereas prey, you know, a predator's life is not easy just because they eat meat, which seems more efficient in terms of energy. Well, they have to chase after the dang thing, right? Like they have to risk quite a bit in terms of time, energy, and even their own safety in order to take down prey and eat that meat. Uh, so an herbivore uh, eating a lot of vegetation and then, yes, like pooping out a lot of the vegetation that cannot be digested just because they have to eat sort of larger quantities to get the same amount of uh, caloric intake doesn't mean it's like not a good system for them, not an effective evolutionary strategy, obviously, because we have plenty of herbivores. So to kind of put this in perspective... An African elephant can eat around 100 to 300 pounds of vegetation per day. That's 45 to 135 kilograms. Uh, they spend most of the day grazing and eating. So the elephant's digestive system isn't the same as a human's. It's adapted for an exclusive vegetarian diet. Uh, digestion can take over 20 hours. Uh, so different elephant species actually have different digestive efficiency. So Asian elephants are more able to get use out of plant matter than, say, African elephants. So Asian elephants digest a greater percentage of the food that they eat. And it's speculated that this is due to basically the availability of the types of vegetation that's available to Asian elephants versus African elephants in their environment. So African elephants are larger than Asian elephants, uh, but they're more inefficient in their diet. So the, the size of the animal is not like directly correlated to the efficiency of their digestion. Uh, the Asian elephants, uh, they uh, have more of their diet is grasses uh, versus the more diverse food in the African elephant's diet. And so the Asian elephant has to be more precisely efficient at digesting those grasses. Um, so yeah, size is really about uh, a combination of the animal's metabolism uh, and about how much food an animal can get. Uh, like the biggest animal in the world, uh, the blue whale, 
uh, subsists entirely on uh, these teeny tiny invertebrates like krill. Uh, they just eat a huge amount of them, a massive, massive amount of them, and that is able to sustain their large size. It's true that krill are very protein-rich, but the common thread there with the krill and, say, like an elephant's diet is the abundance of the krill. Krill are highly abundant. Uh, the blue whale can get a lot of them. And so, uh, and the krill themselves feed on the abundant algae and phytoplankton in the ocean. So, Basically, in terms of getting big and getting buff in the animal kingdom, you don't have to eat meat. You just have to have an abundant food source. If you get enough mass of a food item, even if it's not the most efficient food that you can eat, you will still get big. Uh, so, for instance, like, did you know that panda ancestors, they were not always just eating bamboo. They were once omnivores. Like other bears, they used to eat meat as well as fruit, plants, and etc. But now they're exclusively bamboo eaters. So why would they do this? Uh, this is because of the abundance of bamboo in their territory. Uh, being niche bamboo eaters mean they have a vast food supply and don't have to fight or compete for other food sources. Now, this only applies as long as the bamboo forests remain intact. The reason uh, pandas struggle is when their bamboo forests are uh, depleted, either through you know human human uh, intervention or climate change. So uh, you might wonder, like, well, it doesn't seem wise, right, for an animal to put all their eggs in one basket. Uh, like, if the bamboo becomes more scarce, the pandas would be in danger. And that's true. That is absolutely true. A lot of animals have probably gone extinct because they were specialists in a food source, a very specific food source, and they weren't generalists. And then once that food source uh, went away, maybe due to climate change, maybe due to humans, maybe due to another species of animal being more successful, then they can't compete anymore. Uh, so the thing to remember about evolution is evolution doesn't really have foresight. It can only, the only guiding principle behind evolution is if you can pass your genes on to the next generation, great, you did it. So it's like this, this very small scale thing of like, well, I'm successful. I had progeny and now they're alive. And it's from that very small unit that you have this much larger, these much larger patterns in evolution, but there's no way for uh, evolution to like peer into the future or, or have some like greater understanding of what's going to happen to this animal because that the evolution isn't like a meta cognition it's not it's not a uh, a force outside of just the principle of something that survives will survive and then that thing gets passed on that's it so uh you know if an animal can evolve for millions of years, that hundreds of thousands of years specializing in a food source and being really good at getting that food source and it's successful for hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, then that's what's going to happen even if in the future, sometime in the future, the climate changes, that food source goes away or changes, and then the animal is impacted. Uh, and then that animal might go extinct. So uh, this is actually what is thought to have happened to Gigantopithecus, which is a giant extinct ape 
from around 2 million years ago, um, thought to have lived in southern China. It's kind of like the real life Bigfoot. Some researchers think it spent some of its time like walking on its hind legs. Uh, some think it was too big to do that and walked more sort of gorilla style, but uh, it at least looks a lot like our common perception of what a Bigfoot would look like, but it's extinct. Um, and it may have weighed over 600 pounds. So that's 300 kilograms. So it was a big, big thing. Uh, and it was an herbivore. And it is thought to have gone extinct around 300,000 years ago when climate change made the tropical forests in the region more scarce. So, you know, you, you have this happen to animals where, you know, it has a successful evolutionary strategy for many, many years. And then something happens. The environment changes and then it's no longer successful and then they die out. And the reason things seem so stable to us now, right, like we have you know, animals that we can't imagine the world without, like elephants. Like, we couldn't imagine the world without elephants. Well, because humans live on a very small scale. Humans kind of, our memories go back, you know, maybe thousands of years in terms of our history, uh, not millions of years. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why it feels like evolution is a more stable thing than it actually is. America, we are endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Next listener question. Hi, Katie. I've been wondering for a while, why can't animals tell time? My dog knows when her automatic feeder is about to go off and when it's time to go outside at 5.30 in the morning, even on weekends. The cats know when it is time to be fed and start following us around. Crows know what time I get home from work and can expect some peanuts. It would seem like this would be an evolutionary disadvantage. If an animal has a routine and a predator can learn the routine, it would make it easier to stalk and catch them. It seems like a chaotic schedule would be better with the exception of daylight considerations. Thanks, Will H. Uh, So, I mean, first of all, I think animals can indeed tell time. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's true in a certain way that having a regular schedule, predators might learn uh, your habits more. But the problem with having an irregular schedule in terms of, say, I don't know, uh, waking up at a random time or sometimes being nocturnal, sometimes being diurnal, is that your food source and your ability to get things would become more difficult. So, or like group dynamics, like something like a dog is a very social animal. So having a schedule where it follows, you know, the, the pack, its family, or its, you know, human family is going to be very important for its survival. You know, I mean, actually the same thing with crows. Crows are highly social. So having schedules, having sort of patterns are really useful for social animals to function. Uh, and even the less social animals, having a pattern, a cat is a predator. So having a schedule, knowing uh, like when small animals are the most active uh, is going to be good for it. And, you know, it's also part of the reason animals are active at certain times is temperature of the environment. Like say you you are, uh, you know, somewhere where it's hot, you might be more crepuscular active in dawn and dusk. Uh, so that you can be active when it's a little cooler, but not so cold like it at night. Um, or you might be want to be at, more active during the day because it's warmer and night is too cold. So those are just some reasons that uh, that that there are schedules for animals. Uh, also, sunlight. You know, if you're a visually predisposed animals, you're you're gonna want that sunlight so that you can see what you're doing. I mean, with human beings, we're very visual creatures, much more than a lot of animals. Uh, We don't use our sense of smell uh, or even our hearing, although our hearing is fairly good, but our smell is, you know, it's decent, but it's not nearly as good as say like a dog or a cat. Um, But our vision is really good. And so we're a very like uh, sun-based animal. We need the sunlight so we can see, so we can hunt. So we can gather things like that. And so a lot of animals are like that. They, they need the sunlight so that they can see things. And so having a schedule that basically maximizes the time you're out and about uh, where you can actually see stuff is important. Uh, you see this also in the ocean. Like you see the schedule uh, that these very tiny animals follow, these, phyto, these uh, zooplankton, uh, which is both animals that remain microscopic and tiny their whole lives and animals that are larval, uh, the the offspring of larger animals, fish, uh, cnidarians, uh, which includes jellyfish, a whole bunch of, you know, crustaceans, everything uh, will have a larva, you know, an offspring that can be really, really tiny. 
Uh, and so all of these things, all these little tiny zooplankton go on a mass migration every every night uh, where they go from the uh, sort of depths of the ocean and come up to the surface uh, to feed because during the daytime they actually uh, hide at the depth of the ocean and that schedule actually protects them because they are they go down below where the sunlight can reach them so predators have a harder time finding them seeing them and eating them and then at night they come up to the surface so that they can feed on phytoplankton, you know, algae uh, that has been feeding off of the sun rays. And it's this huge mass migration that happens every day. And it's really amazing. So, so there are a lot of good reasons for animals to have schedules, even if that means predators can perhaps exploit that schedule to uh, know when their prey is out and about. Uh, and in terms of whether or not animals can tell time, there has been uh, some research on this. Now, of course, animals have a sense of, of time, of timing. Uh, they don't maybe have a definition of time or a precise sort of orological measurement of time with numbers and fractions. You know, they don't have their little, little wristwatches. Uh, but aside from clocks and understanding like what an hour is or how to set an appointment, uh, animals have been found uh, to have a sense of time. So there's research on mouse brains that show that they have an internal clock. And they do this research by putting mice into virtual reality, which is always funny to me when an animal is put into a VR scenario. So the mice ran on treadmills and were attached to a little mousy VR headset. They ran down a VR hallway uh, so they're they're running in place just on a treadmill, but to the mouse, they think they're running down a hallway because they're in virtual reality. Uh, and then they come to a little VR door, uh, you know, this, this uh, digital door. After six seconds, the door would open and then they can keep going through the door and receive uh, a little treat. So the treat is real, but the door is fake. The hallway is fake. They're just on a treadmill. So after training like this, the mice learned that this virtual door uh, is shut for six seconds and then opens and then they can keep going through and get their little treat. Uh, the researchers then made the door invisible uh, and they had like a mark marker on the ground, sort of the change in the uh, the floor uh, so that the mice would know that the door is supposed to be there but then they can't actually see the door. So the mice still waited at the invisible door for six seconds before proceeding to receive their reward, uh, even though they don't see the virtual door opening. So they don't know when uh, they're supposed to proceed through. There's the evidence that they are actually somehow able to wait six seconds, the amount of time they know they were supposed to wait uh, to receive their treat. Uh, by looking at the rat's neural activity, the researchers found that specific neurons fired when the mouse was waiting for the invisible door to open for that like that waiting period. They know they have to wait before receiving their treat, which indicates that there may be specific neural networks responsible for timing. Uh, so 
Uh, it's, I think, reasonable to assume that if mice are capable of having this little internal stopwatch, other animals probably also have this ability. Um, but of course, there's like a big difference between a mouse being able to remember how to wait six seconds and a mouse being able to have sort of the concept of counting, like, you know, thinking like one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, one mouse Mississippi, two mouse Mississippi. That's probably not happening. Uh, but yeah, really interesting to see that even a mouse is capable of very precise timing uh, abilities. So quite, quite amazing. Next listener question. Hello, Katie. Just in case you do a listener questions episode before Halloween, I have a spooky question for you. If you were a witch, assuming you're not, <laughs> assume away, uh, what kind of animal would be your familiar? I think I would go Betagar Basca all the way. They definitely know how to get to the underworld and back. Another good option would be a black rat snake that coils around the neck like a necklace and is allowed to practice kleptothermy in exchange for its services as a familiar. What about you? Would you have a velvet worm who can squirt black magic out of its little squirty holes? The Putu bird is also a good candidate for a familiar because they are clearly already involved in the dark arts. What do you think? Happy Halloween, Chelsea. Now, of course, this is after Halloween. Sorry about that. But I'm still, you know what? For me, spooky season doesn't end on Halloween. Spooky season is all of autumn and winter because, I don't know, whenever I want to get cozy, I also want to think about spooky things like ghosts and velvet worms. Of course, I do love the idea of a velvet worm familiar who squirts black magic out of its little squirty holes. Real life velvet worms are a type of, uh, it's a worm-like animal. It's not an actual worm, but they look like a sort of cross between a caterpillar and a worm. They're adorable. And they are, uh, they have these little nodules on their heads where they can squirt the sticky substance at their prey because they prey on insects and then the prey gets stuck and the velvet worm can go and nibble on them, eat them. Uh, and it's great. It's very spooky. Uh, I also love the Betagar basca that Chelsea mentioned. It is a river turtle found in Southeast Asia, also called the Northern River Terrapin. So males will change from an olive green to spooky Halloween colors, red and black coloration during the breeding season. Uh, their heads turn black and their necks turn blood red uh, to attract females. So these are some goth-loving females. Uh, so in terms of a, a familiar, I think I got to go with a classic because a familiar has to be good at carrying out my witchy tasks. It's got to be vaguely spooky, vaguely threatening, good at picking locks uh, for my witch crimes and capable of relaying messages to my coven of fellow witches, and also looks cool. So for me, I think I would pick the New Caledonian Crow. They've got the classic kind of corvid witchy look. You know, a lot of witches are going to have ravens and crows and stuff, and so it would fit right in. Uh, but the New Caledonian Crow can make tools out of twigs, paper, and wire. So... Uh, they are really special species of corvid, and I'm pretty sure I could train one to pick a lock or stir a witch's brew uh, as long as I made sure that 
they would get compensation. I think I would have to pay the New Caledonian crow a fair wage because these crows are very intelligent. And I'm pretty sure it would know if it's being exploited. Uh, yeah, but I think their cleverness in figuring out puzzles and problem solving and getting grubs out of bark in the wild and food out of uh, man-made puzzles in the laboratory would make them a very valuable ally in the dark arts uh, and, and in my, my little witch plans, you know? Uh, also, they if I'm flying on some kind of broom or vacuum or whatever it is, uh, they would be able to keep up and not be afraid of heights. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next listener question. Hi, Katie. Just wondering if you've seen the Apple TV series Invasion. The alien's in there. Not a spoiler because it's shown in the teasers. Teasers show everything, by the way. I've seen trailers that show the entire TV show slash movie, and there's nothing left to spoil. Anyways, back to the question. Uh, The aliens in there uh, definitely got that could-be-highly-evolved crab look to them. 
I wonder if the creators had the thought that all evolutions lead to crab on the universal scale. Cheers, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. So I have not seen uh, this uh, TV series. Uh, but yeah, I looked at some of the images from the show. And yeah, I agree with you. They're pretty crab-like. Maybe a little bit of sea urchin tossed in there. I do love them. And uh, I, I'm answering this question because I think it's really interesting how so many movies and TV shows about scary aliens have aliens that are ripped from the pages of marine biology. Uh, so I wanted to go through some other examples that I can think of. So the alien from the Aliens franchise, you know, Signori Weaver and the aliens uh, chasing her around in her underpants. Uh, those aliens uh, look like you took a deep sea anglerfish and bred it with a human and a moray eel. And I love, you know, like the when they open their mouth, the aliens in the movie have that little little guy that comes out, like the the extra little like bitey tongue. Uh, it's that uh, there's an actual thing in marine biology. Uh, there is a pharyngeal second set of jaws that moray eels have that can come out and grab food. So they open their mouths and then like a second little set of jaws shoot out of their mouths and can grab food and like pull them in just like you see in the aliens. Uh, I also find face huggers to be very crustacean-like very cra or like horseshoe crab-like. Uh, horseshoe crabs... Uh, despite being marine animals, are actually not true crabs. They're not crustaceans at all. They are chelicerates related to arachnids like spiders and scorpions. So, you know, if you see like this alien design and it's like, man, it's kind of like, it's kind of like marine life, but it also kind of looks insect life. There's a lot of uh, evolutionary crossover between marine animals like isopods or horseshoe, cra horseshoe crabs and land arthropods, scorpions, spiders, uh, isopods on land. I, marine isopods uh, can get quite big. And then terrestrial isopods are also known as roly-polies. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, keep your eye out for alien beings in TV shows and movies that look like a cross between marine life or some kind of weird land arthropod. So there are more movies that have aliens that come right out of marine biology. Uh, War of the Worlds have alien-powered ships that look like big squids. Uh, Arrival have less menacing aliens, but they look like big kind of inky squids or octopuses. Uh, the alien um, thing, I'm going to say, in the movie Nope was intentionally cribbed from marine life. Uh, and was based on like a sand dollar design and at other times weird sort of invertebrate sea life like uh, sea pens or sea squirts. So the alien in, I mean, this is perhaps a less famous movie, but The Faculty had Frodo Baggins in it. Uh, this is an old movie. was explicitly uh, a tentacled sea critter that could infect humans. Uh, the Abyss, uh, spoilers, this movie features an alien civilization underwater. Uh, Suicide Squad, uh, didn't watch the movie, but apparently it's aliens look like giant, adorable starfish. Uh, and then in Cloverfield, uh, the little guys look like little isopods or crustaceans to me. Uh, so to me, the, the, the list goes on and on. I, I think the point is that we love a marine-inspired alien for some reason. I think that 
perhaps this is because marine life is the closest we get to alien life on our planet. Uh, because aside from, say, uh, aquatic mammals that hop back into the water like whales who started out terrestrial and went back into the ocean, uh, our evolutionary history diverged quite early on from a lot of marine life. So octopuses and humans evolved our brains and eyes mostly independently. Our last common ancestor was some kind of nematode-like creature. And so uh, they have all of these abilities, all of these characteristics that are kind of similar to our own, like their eyes. Uh, they're very expressive in kind of an interesting way. Uh, they seem to perhaps even dream. And yet all of these things, they had to evolve independently uh, because, yeah, our, our last common ancestor was essentially like some kind of flatworm with like an eye spot, not an actual eyeball. So I, I really don't blame the entertainment industry at all for using marine life as a stand-in for aliens. Uh, although it makes me like the aliens more. Like I, It's hard for me to find them creepy or scary when it's like, oh, cute little octopus. Anyways, uh, I love a mind flare. Adorable. Well, that'll just about do it for today's listener questions episode. If you have a question that you would like to have me answer, uh, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. I either answer here on the show or I'll write to you back in your email uh, if I if I can. And I really appreciate all your questions. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it and you leave a rating or a view, I truly do appreciate it. I read every single one of the reviews. Um, and thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exo Lumina, Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm not your mother. I can't tell you what to do. See you next Wednesday. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.